0: Good morning, if you would open your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 4 as we continue working our way through this book. And as you can tell from the the title of this sermon, uh, we're going to study how Nehemiah and the Jewish people dealt and responded to opposition. Uh, That's really what chapter 4 is is all about. Uh, But before I jump in, I I just want to address something real quick. Because I think a lot of us struggle, like when we're studying and we're reading Old Testament books, as we're kind of like, man, what, is, what does this mean for me? Like, what's, what's the application here? Because uh, we're like, man, this is written thousands of years ago. Uh, like, there's this guy, Nehemiah. God tells him to build a wall. He's a good leader. He trusts God. He prays a lot. He overcomes some adversity, and they end up building the wall. And you're like, cool. (laughs) And then you put that book back on the shelf. And that's about all you think of it. Um, But we have to remember that while Nehemiah was a real historical person with real experiences, this isn't just a biography written about a man. No, the words on these pages have been inspired by the Holy Spirit in order to equip us right now in 2019 for every good work. So there's a word for you this morning in Nehemiah 4 there's a word for me that we need to hear and the fact of the matter is we all deal with opposition in some way shape or form all of us in this room we deal with opposition and i'll say this anyone who s- seeks to faithfully live for god is going to experience some opposition jesus says in John fifteen twenty. If they persecuted me, uh, they're gonna persecute you. It's just part of the Christian life. It's part of what it means to follow Jesus. Ephesians six says that our battle is not really against flesh and blood, but it's against this invisible spiritual realm that impacts every decision that you and I make. That which is good, that which is God honoring, will always be opposed. Because we live in a broken world. And I'd say that even right now, uh, there's opposition going on, even as I'm speaking, even as we open up God's Word, there's opposition that wants to keep us from getting anything out of this and just tuning out. For the Christian, the the question isn't, will you have opposition? No, instead, it's, what are you going to do when opposition arises? When opposition pops you in the mouth... How are you going to respond? If we're going to persevere well in faith, then we've got to learn how to respond to opposition. And if you're like me, I've still got a lot to learn. I don't do real well with opposition. And so there's stuff that I'm trying to learn from Nehemiah 4, just like you. So in Nehemiah 4, we're going to see opposition come in three main forms. We'll see opposition through ridicule or mockery. That's verses 1 through 6. Then we're going to see opposition through conspiracy or threat. That's verses 7 through 9. And lastly, we'll see opposition through discouragement or fear. That's verses 10 through 12. And then 13 through 23 is essentially how Nehemiah and the people of God respond to all this opposition. So with that said, before we jump in, would you bow with me as we come before the Lord? Well, Father God, we come before you right now, and we ask that you would humble us this morning so that we can receive your word. And we also pray that you'd be gracious, and that you would stoop down, and you would teach us this morning through your inspired word. And we pray this in the name of Jesus, amen. Well, Nehemiah 4, verse 1 It says this. Now it came about that when Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became furious and very angry and he mocked the Jews. He spoke in the presence of his brothers and the wealthy men of Samaria and he said, What are these feeble Jews doing? Are they going to restore it for themselves? Can they offer sacrifices? Can they finish it in a day? Can they revive the stones from the dusty rubble, even the burned ones? Now, Tobiah, the Ammonite, was near him, and he said, even what they are building, if a fox should jump on it, he would break their stone wall down. And then Nehemiah prays, hear, O our God, how we are despised. Return their reproach on their own heads and give them up for plunder in a land of captivity. Do not forgive their iniquity and let not their sin be blotted out before you. For they have demoralized the builders. So we built the wall. And the whole wall was joined together to half its height. For the people had a mind to work. Well, let's pause real quick and just examine our first form of opposition, which is the opposition of ridicule that arises in Nehemiah chapter 4. And this ridicule comes through two main characters. The first one is Sanballat, who is the governor over the nearby province of Samaria. And then he's got his little sidekick, Tobiah, who was the governor of the nearby province of Ammon. And for some reason, um, when I pictured these two guys, I picture the two bullies from the movie, A Christmas Story, right? You got the red-haired bully, and he's got his little sidekick bully, and they're always picking on Ralphie. And then the best part of the whole movie is when Ralphie just destroys the dude, right? Just owns him. I don't know. When I think about these two guys, that's what I think of. But Sandball is there and and he's got his local militia known as the wealthy men with him. And they are just spewing sarcastic, critical mockery towards the Jewish people and the work that they're trying to do. And there's a couple things that I think we need to notice here. Number one is critics usually run with other critics. Critics usually run with other critics. Have you noticed that? They usually, they roll together. They travel in groups because they're too insecure and they've got to make themselves feel important so they'll surround themselves with like-minded people. And I think it's a good reminder for all of us here that you are who you associate yourself with. You are who you associate yourself with. If you are constantly around critical and negative people who tear down others, then you're probably going to become a critical and negative person who tears down others. If you want to be a loving and joyful person, then you need to surround yourself with people who are loving and joyful. And I'm speaking to myself too, because I'm sure a lot of us here, like we struggle with just being critical and negative. And I do too. Um, My wife probably knows that more than anybody (laughs) And that's why I, I try to make an effort to surround myself with people who have attributes that I desire. So for example, uh, our campus pastor at Stone Oak, his name's Will Davis, I'm in his life group because if you've ever met Will, he's one of the most peaceful, loving guys that you'll ever meet. Like, I don't know what's wrong with him, <laughs> but I'm like, I want that. <laughs> and so I joined his life group because you are who you associate yourself with. And I want to be more like Will Davis. The second thing I want you to notice is that Sanballat and Tobiah aren't just throwing around petty little remarks that are just easy to brush off. Like, no, these are really disturbingly cruel remarks by some really unstable, angry guys. It says in verse 1 that when Sanballat heard what the Jews were doing, he was filled with rage. He was absolutely furious about what the Jews were doing. Uh, these guys aren't just teasing Nehemiah and the Jews. They are trying to incite pain. When Sanballat says, you feeble Jews, at first glance, you're like, okay, that's not that big of a cut down. Call me feeble. All right, whatever. Um, but if you dig in a little bit more, and if you study this phrase a little closer, you'll find that the verb from which this adjective is derived from stems from other verses like 1 Samuel Two, five, where it talks about a woman who is barren. Or Isaiah 19.8, where it talks about a fisherman whose, whose trade has failed. Or Hosea 4.3, where it talks about the inhabitants of a defeated land. So when he says, you feeble Jews, he's mocking them in a really wicked manner. He says, you feeble Jews are like a barren woman who is unable to have kids. You're like a fisherman who can't provide for himself. You're like a loser who lives in a land that has already been defeated. I mean, these are deep, hateful words that are meant to incite pain. There's that old saying that we always teach our kids, sticks and stones may hurt my bones, but words will never hurt you. Uh, That's not true. (laughs) Words do hurt you. Some of the deepest pain that you and I have experienced has come as a result of words. That other people have told us. So Sanballat says, you feeble Jews. What are you going to do? Are you going to offer sacrifices to your God? Are you going to worship Him? Are you going to give glory to your God? Look around. What stones are you going to use? You mean those broken stones? Those burned stones? Those stones that have already been defeated? What do you do? you just going to revive them? you going to bring them to life? No, you are. Who you are. Look at your past. You're a failure, and you always will be. You see, people like Sanballat and Tobiah are dependent upon keeping other people down. They're reliant on the failures or weaknesses of other people. That's where they get their sense of worth, that's where they get their identity, their sense of power. And there's still people like that today. You and I know them. Uh, these guys didn't want the Jews to rebuild. Their walls. They didn't want the Jews to glorify God because then that would give them hope. And we all know what hope does hope crushes fear. And so naturally, they wanted to keep the Jews down because once hope starts stirring, these guys lose their power. Uh, And the same thing is true for Satan. He does the same thing with me, he does it with you, either externally through other people or sometimes just internally in your mind. In fact, even last night, as I was trying to prepare for my sermon, I was wrestling with all sorts of doubts and thoughts that probably you deal with as well. It's these thoughts that come into your mind. Saying, are you kidding me? You can't clean up your life. You've had your chance. It's over. You're a hypocrite. You are who you are. You're a failure. And that's never going to change. But here's what Satan and guys like Sanballat and Tobiah don't realize about God. Don't miss this, okay? God takes pleasure in taking broken people and reviving them for his glory. When Jesus went to the cross, he says, you give me your brokenness, child. You give me your failures. And watch as I crush that stuff to the cross so that it no longer defines you. And when Jesus rose from the dead, he granted all of us who trust in him a renewed identity. And you can have that right now. All you have to do is call upon the name of the Lord. And the word says that you will be saved. And here's the really incredible part for Christians. God doesn't just dismiss your past once you start following Christ. No, the crazy thing is God will actually use your brokenness. He will use some of your greatest failures in order to create something beautiful. A lot of the times, at least this has been true for me... Your greatest ministry will come from those dark places in your life that God has redeemed. That's the beauty of the gospel. He takes burnt stones and he uses them to build a wall for his glory. So the question is, okay, like, what do I do then when mockery and ridicule comes my way? How should I respond? And Nehemiah gives us the answer in verses 4 through 5. He says that he responds not by retaliating, but by turning to God in prayer. Now, the way in which Nehemiah prays to God is interesting, to say the least. He essentially asks God to punish these people in a rather bold way. He says to God, return their reproach on their heads. Don't forgive their iniquity. Don't blot out their sin. Essentially, he says, go get them, God. Make them suffer. Not a typical prayer that you hear out loud in the church. I mean, can you imagine after Stephen got up here and you know, starts praying for the tithes and offerings and then says, And God, we pray you would use it to punish the wicked. Amen. It'd be a little awkward. okay? It'd be a little weird. Uh, but some of you are like, Well, i got some people in my life I wouldn't mind praying that for. And I'm like, Yeah, I feel you. Okay. Um, but, but what's really going on here? If you read through the Old Testament especially in the Psalms, you'll see what theologians call imprecatory Psalms. And basically what these Psalms are is they're prayers calling calling upon God to curse or punish one's enemies. And really the heart behind these types of prayers is, God, don't let the wicked get away with injustice. Don't let the wicked defame your name. And I think that's how Nehemiah saw it. He said, God, they're not just mocking me. This is your plan. They're mocking you. Don't let them get away for that. with that. And, and I think there's a place for that. I mean, that's a, there's righteous anger there. And there's a lot that could be said. But I'll just say this. In Romans twelve nineteen, it says, Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, and I will repay, says the Lord. Here's, here's the thing. In God's economy, nobody gets away with anything, okay? In God's economy, nobody gets away with anything. Sin always gets punished, always. Either Christ was punished on the sinner's behalf or the sinner is punished. But one way or another, someone's going to pay the price. And the gospel scandalously declares that we have a king in Christ Jesus, who became the sacrificial lamb in order to substitute himself for us so that he could absorb all of our sin, absorb all of our debt, and then we, the guilty, get to walk away free. That's the gospel. You either accept that or you reject that. But one way or another, sin will be dealt with. So you don't need to take vengeance because vengeance is the Lord's. And that's all I'll say about that. But one thing that I think Nehemiah models very well for all of us here is that when it comes to mockery, when we are being ridiculed, instead of stooping down to their level and retaliating, you get on your knees and you give it to God. The first response to ridicule should always be a posture of prayer as we give it to God. Um, at home, I've got a couple different prayer journals and a, a fear of mine is that like one day when I die, my family's going to read it. (laughs) And they're going to be like, yo, like dad was a mess. (laughs) Like we had no idea. (laughs) Um, But here's the thing with these prayer journals is it's, they're a safe place for me to vent to God. And I just throw it all out there. And it's not pretty. Often it's actually really ugly. (laughs) Uh, but it's an avenue for me to cry out t- to God. Um, and I think that's very appropriate. 1 Peter 5, 7 says this. It says, cast all your anxiety on him because Jesus cares for you. Not just some. He says all of it. Everything that brings you anxiety, bring it to me because I can take it. I can take it. God cares for us. He wants to help us. So, so how do we respond to ridicule and mockery? We respond... By coming to God with a broken heart. Because ridicule hurts. You don't need to be a tough person. God knows ridicule hurts. And so we own the pain. But we realize that we don't need to take vengeance. And so we we view it in the lens of the cross. And we cast all of our cares upon him. And when we do this, prayer becomes like this release valve for us. And after we've done that, then we can respond in a Christ-like manner. And keep pressing on to whatever it is that God has called us to do. And that's what Nehemiah does. He casts his anxiety to God. And then he, get, he gets back to work. And that's what good leaders do. And that's what we see in verse 6. Nehemiah, Nehemiah rallies the troops. They have a mind to work. They're motivated. And they build the wall to half its height. Like, I love that. Like Ridicule comes. Nehemiah gets on his knees. He prays. And he says, give me a brick. Let's keep working. He doesn't let it stop him. But then, unfortunately, in verse 7, we see our second form of opposition, which is opposition through conspiracy or threat. And it says this, Now when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the Astrodites heard that the repair of the walls of Jerusalem went on and that the breaches began to be closed, they were very angry. All of them conspired together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause a disturbance in it. But we prayed to our God. And because of them, we set up a guard against them day and night. Ah, like this is frustrating. People are working hard. They're responding the way that God wants them to respond. And guess what? The opposition doesn't go away. In fact, it gets a whole lot worse. It goes from ridicule and mockery to straight up conspiracy where the opposition... Is threatening to attack. Also, take note the opposition is increasing in number. In addition to Sanballat and Tobiah, you now have the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the Ashidites who have joined in. If you look at geography, you're going to have Sanballat and the Samaritans who are to the north. You've got the Arabs who are to the south. You have the Ammonites to the east. And you've got the Ashidites to the west. In other words, the Jewish people are completely surrounded. Enemies are on every side. Everywhere the Jews looked, there's opposition. And the hard part about this is like the Jews did everything right. They're praying, they're working hard, they're doing exactly what God has called them to do, and things get worse. There ain't no prosperity gospel here. These are people seeking to do God's will, and more opposition comes. More. It gets harder you ever experienced anything like that? Like you're trying to trust God. You're doing your best, not perfectly, but you're following him. You're praying fervently, but everything seems to be crumbling around you. And the natural question that comes into our mind is, God, am I doing something wrong? Have I fallen out of your favor? Do you still love me? And I'm sure like, all of these are questions that the Jewish people are, are wrestling with right now. And, and there's all sorts of examples that I could, I could list right now that are happening in all of our lives. Uh, for, for some of you, you're here, and there's sickness in your body that just won't go away. Like you've you prayed, you've prayed fervently, you've begged, you, but the sickness is still there. Um, others of you are here, and you got laid off from work, and you started filling out applications, a week went by, a month went by, a year, nothing. And you're working your tail off, you're trying, you're praying, you're filling out applications, but you're still unemployed. Uh, others of you are here this morning, and, and you've, just been, you've been separated from your spouse. And you're doing everything you can to try to make amends and reconcile, but they just won't respond. They're not responding to you. Or, or, or a lot of you, like you're single, like you've been on dates, you're trying to find the person that God has for you, but it just never seems to work out. And then some of you are in here, like you want children, like it's just a natural desire, like I want children. But for whatever reason, like you've been to fertility doctors, you're praying, but you're still barren. Like this is the type of stuff that just wears us down, Right? And I got others in here. You're like, that's yeah, all of that and some. Okay. Like you're just in this broken season and things don't seem to be getting any better. In fact, they're getting a lot worse. And I just want to encourage all of us to do what Nehemiah is, is encouraging his people to do. Remain faithful, All right? Keep going. One brick at a time, one day at a time, you build that wall. Trust your God. Take another step, whatever that means for you and know that he sees you, and God's going to come through. He will. So lean in. And so how does Nehemiah respond to intensified opposition? Well, through intensified prayer. Like when opposition amps up, so does his prayer life. And he again comes before his God, realizing that ultimate victory, is it's got to come through him. But in addition... To this, I want you to take notice of something. While Nehemiah realizes that God is sovereign and his true protector, he also knew that he had a responsibility for the safety and welfare of those who were beneath him. So in addition to prayer, he set up a guard and he prepared his people for battle. There's something really important here that we need to grasp. It's this, there's no dichotomy. Between faith and action, it's not just pray and sit back. That's not what we see here. It's not just praise, leave it to God. No, it's pray fervently with all your heart, but then prepare yourself for battle. And we're going to see that here in a minute. But the Jewish people are struggling; they're having a hard time. In verse ten, it says, "Thus in Judah it was said, the strength of the burden bearers is failing, yet there is much rubbish." And we ourselves are unable to rebuild the wall. Our enemies said they will not know or see until we come among them, kill them, and put a stop to their work. The tide turns in verses 10 and 11. The opposition goes from mocking to plotting to now in verse 11, hey, we're going to kill you. Uh, And then we're going to see our last form of opposition, and I think it's the worst one. It's opposition through fear. Or discouragement. We see in verse 10, the workers are worn down. The words are written in the form of a poem so that you can feel the emotional weight of what they're saying. They say, our our strength is failing. There's too much rubbish or work to be done. And then the discouraging words, we are unable to rebuild the wall. Fear and discouragement has just gripped the Jewish people and it sapped all the life out of them. President Franklin D. Roosevelt, on March 4th, 1933, in his first inaugural address, said this to a nation in the grip of an economic depression. The only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Why? Because fear paralyzes you. Fear is contagious and it paralyzes others. And it's one of Satan's main tactics for you and I. That's why the most repeated command in all of scripture is fear not. Fear not. Because it is, that is the tactic that Satan will use. And the reason why it's so dangerous is because fear leads to discouragement, which by definition is a deficit of courage. That's what discouragement is. It's a deficit of courage. It keeps you from going forward. It keeps you from taking bold steps of faith. It keeps you from experiencing all that God has for you. And the root of discouragement is an unbelief in the promises of God. That's why it's Satan's focus. He wants to discourage us through disbelief in God's promises. That's why it's, Guess what? Like when you look at Nehemiah, he's a good leader. So what do, what do good leaders do? They remind people of the promises of God. And that's what Nehemiah does in verses 12 and 13. And then he also strategically places them in a position to be successful. In verses 12 and 13, he increases security. It says, when the Jews who lived near came and told us 10 times, they will come up against us from every place where you may turn. Then I stationed men in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, the exposed places. And I stationed the people and families with their swords, spears, and bows. And then verse 14, which is probably my favorite verse in all this, Nehemiah has like his brave heart moment. Right, like I'm not recommending that movie, but like in Braveheart, you got like William Wallace, right? He's on horseback, he's got blue paint all over his face, and he's just going back and forth in front of the, you know, all the people. And I, I picture Nehemiah doing that here, and he says, Don't be afraid, remember your Lord, who is great and awesome, and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. Freedom! And then he just runs, okay? That that doesn't happen here. <laughs> but I wanted him to really bad. But it's just like it's a really powerful moment in Nehemiah where once again we see this relationship between the sovereignty of God and personal responsibility. Remember your God, there's sovereignty. The Lord is your rock. His plan will not be thwarted. But fight for your family. There's personal responsibility. It's not just trust your God and sit back and do nothing. No, it's trust your God and take up your sword. Pray, trust God, but in the same breath, you take action and you fight. Let me give you a really simple example of this. Um, every single night, I rock my two little girls to bed and I pray with all my heart that God would protect them. With all my heart, everything in me. I love those girls so much. And I realize That ultimate protection is gonna—it comes from God. He's in control. I'm totally dependent on Him. But you better believe when I walk out of that room, I go lock the door, right? And then if you break into my house, I got a surprise for you. Okay? I did not think I was gonna. Y'all don't even know what the surprise is. Just break in, you'll find out. Okay? But it's all throughout the scriptures, okay? We pray earnestly for God to move. And then with the same breath, fueled by faith, we act. and We build that wall and we take up our weapons and we prepare to fight. Which leads us to our last section after the Braveheart scene, verse 15. It says, when our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan... Then all of us returned to the wall, each one to his work. From that day on, half of my servants carried on the work, while half of them held the spears, the shields, the bows, and the breastplates. And the captains were behind the whole house of Judah. Those who were rebuilding the wall and those who carried burdens took their load with one hand, doing the work and the other holding a weapon. As for the builders... Each wore his sword girded at his side as he built, while the trumpeter stood near me. I said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, The work is great and extensive, and we are separated on the wall far from one another. At whatever place you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. So we carried on the work with half of them holding spears, From dawn until the stars appeared. At that time, I also said to the people, Let each man with his servant spend the night within Jerusalem, so that they may be a guard for us by night, and a laborer by day. So neither I, my brothers, my servants, nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us removed our clothes, each took his weapon even to the water. There is so much to say here. And I wish I could like preach a whole nother sermon just on verses 15 through 23, but I'm running out of time. Um, So what I'm gonna do is I'm just gonna summarize and I I just wanna point out a few things here that I think will help us for those of us that are battling through discouragement, which I would guess many of us are, just some application principles that we can take away and hopefully help us to battle well. Uh, And so number one, in order to battle discouragement well and to overcome it, number one, we've got to pause. And what I mean by pause is we've got to pause and direct our attention to the Lord. Notice in verse 13, after their lowest emotional state of discouragement, Nehemiah has them stop working on the wall and he brings them all together in order to direct their attention to who God is. Uh, Some of you here... You need to press the pause button in your life. Okay, you, you've been going hard. You need to press that pause button. And you need to sit with your God. And you need to remind yourself who you are in him. And remind yourself what your purpose is. And you may be sitting there like, well, how do I do that? Uh, by calling to mind what the Lord has already said. Open up that Bible. Read it. Meditate on what it says. It's for you. It's to strengthen you. And then I I was showing my my sermon notes to our women's director, Brenda McCord, and she was like, boy, don't forget verse 15. And so verse 15 is crucial. Take note. It says that God had frustrated their plan. Okay? God answered Nehemiah's prayer. Did you catch that? It's a really, you, you just glaze right over it. God answered Nehemiah's prayer. He hadn't he didn't forget. He had his purposes in the opposition, but he did not forget Nehemiah's prayer. And he came through. He came through. Listen, God's gonna come through for you. He's gonna come through for you. Philippians 1 6 says that he is going to complete the work that he has started in you. You can take that to the bank. That's a promise. That's true for anyone who trusts in Christ. You need to sit and you need to pause. reflect on that verse 20 our god will fight for us that's a promise that's still true today he's not giving up on us and once you've paused the number two is you got to act okay after you've paused you need to set goals in your life that will achieve the result you're looking for okay take life a day at a time and take steps to live out your faith Remember, as we talked about, there's no dichotomy between faith and action. So you keep praying, but you take steps. Uh, Some of you have been praying earnestly, like earnestly. You're a prayer warrior, but you haven't done anything lately. Now it's time to do something. I don't know what that is for you, but it's time to act. Going back to the job, if you're sitting here and you haven't had a job in a while, and you've been praying for God to open up a door, but you're not filling out applications, fill out applications. Send out that resume. If you're here and you're struggling with your spouse and you've been praying for greater intimacy, that's great. Keep praying. But initiate a romantic idea. If you're here and you've got this sin struggle and it's addictive and you can't escape and you've been pleading and begging God to get it out of your life, that's wonderful. Keep doing that. But set up boundaries in your life so that you can avoid that sin. Okay? I have to do that as well. Or if there's someone in your life that you're not reconciled to, and you're just broken by it and you're praying, that's great, keep praying, but initiate reconciliation. God has reconciled us to him through Christ and we've been given the ministry of reconciliation. Take that step. If there's someone in your life, like if it's a legit opposition, like a relational aspect where they're not respecting you, pray, but set up boundaries in your life and communicate those boundaries as long as they're biblical, okay? We have a duty in this life to be obedient. Our choices and our actions matter. You see that all throughout Scripture. So take your sword, get out your hammer, and go to work. And then the last thing, and I'm done. Pause, act, and the third thing, if we're going to overcome discouragement, we've got to rally. We've got to rally. Notice in verses 19 through 20, if the wall was attacked, a trumpet was blown and reinforcements would gather in order to fight, okay? If we are going to overcome discouragement, we have got to fight together. We are never meant to fight adversity all by ourselves. That doesn't work like that. Um, A couple years ago, I was at a gym playing basketball with my brother and uh, I don't remember what happened, but he got in an altercation with another guy. And so instinctively... I ran to my brother's aid, okay? And I had this guy come up to me. He had grabbed me. He's like, bro, chill. Like, chill out. And I was like, no, no, like, this is family. This is my brother. And the guy said, oh yeah, that's true. And he let me go, okay? <laughs> he let me go. Because it's universal, right? Family stands in the gap for one another, okay? You catch that? Family always stands in the gap for one another. The church, this ain't some business This isn't some organization. This is family. We family. And some of you are hurting right now. Like you've got opposition in your life that you can't and you weren't made to overcome by yourself. You need your family. You need reinforcements. But the reason why you don't have reinforcements is because you haven't blown that trumpet. Some of you need to blow that trumpet this morning and let people know I'm hurting. I'm struggling. I can't do this. And let the church come around you and lift you up. And they'll cast your cares before the Lord for you. And so my question for you, and I want to end with this, is who are those people in your life who will rally with you? Who are those people in your life who will rally with you? If you don't have those people in your life, well, pause and pray. Pray. And then act. We've got life groups. We've got ABFs. We have discipleship programs. We've got people that want to rally with you. But you got to blow that trumpet. i got 30 seconds. <laughs> Expect opposition. Don't think it's weird. Don't let it shock you when it comes. Anybody who desires to seek after God will experience opposition. Sometimes opposition might mean that you're actually doing God's will, okay? Others of you are like, I don't have any opposition in my life. I'm not saying you need to go and look for it, but sometimes that's a point of saying, well, maybe you're not living strong for the Lord because you're gonna experience opposition in this life. It's gonna come. Now, you don't have to go hunt it down, okay? <laughs> It'll come. But when it does, you pause and you pray, you come before your God, Know that he fights for you. He's with you. None of your work is in vain. And then you act. You set goals in your life, boundaries in your life, and then rally. Get some people that are going to come alongside you and fight with you. We've got to have it. We can't do this by ourselves. Let me pray. Father God, we thank you for your word we thank you that it's rich I preached for 40 minutes and there's still a million other things I didn't cover God I pray that for everyone in this room that you'd help them to be bold that you'd help them to have courage that they would be reminded today that you haven't forgotten about them that you're with them you're leading them you go before us We have a Savior who understands exactly what it's like to suffer. He suffered more than anybody when He went to the cross. He knows how to overcome. So if we'll trust in Him, we'll overcome as well. God, give us grace. Give us the desire to pause, to act, and to rally. And to continue in the work that You've called us to do. And we pray all this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.